Titus chapter 1, we're going to be reading from verses uh, verse, uh, 5 all the way through the end of this chapter, verse 16. Hear the words of the living God. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife... And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving... Nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. These are the words of the Lord. Now, Paul, the writer of this letter, the apostle of the Lord, doesn't waste any time in getting down to the business of this very brief pastoral letter. Right after that beautiful and rich greeting that we looked at last week, where uh, Paul talks about the aim and purpose of the apostolic ministry to which he was called, to which he has committed himself to as a servant of the Lord. He said it's it's for the sake of the faith of God's elect, for their knowledge of the truth which leads to godliness. And then he encourages them with the eternal hope that they have being in Christ Jesus. Now he turns and gives his first set of instructions to Titus. Titus, his apostolic delegate, which he refers to as his true child in the common faith. And he states the purpose for which he left Titus in Crete. And that was to appoint elders... In every town. Now what we know and we talked a little bit about last week. As the apostle and his ministry team. At some point during what many scholars consider to be his fourth missionary journey. Events that took place after the end of the writing of the book of Acts. And the narrative that we find there. Had traveled to this island nation of Crete. To the south of Greece. And there he preached the gospel made disciples. He went from town to town doing that throughout this island, some 3,200 square miles uh, in size, a a rather large island. Uh, And what we know is that 
churches were formed. Churches were started in the midst. Probably house churches were, were opened in each of these particular towns. And then Paul, as was his custom, moves on to another place. He's continuing to advance the gospel in different parts of the known world uh, during that time. What does he do? He leaves Titus behind. Why does he do that? Well, he tells us here to put what remained into order. Titus is left there so he can finish the work that had begun, bring it to completion, to take something that perhaps was in disorder and put it into order. Something was left unaccomplished by Paul's departure, and now Titus needs to do that. And that work of completion has to do with appointing elders in every town where there is a church. Now, if you recall, in part 9 of our series, when we looked at 1 Timothy, chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, Paul instructs Timothy to do the very same thing there in Ephesus. He is to appoint elders. He's to set in office those who who would be the leaders of the local church. Elders are those who are appointed to the office of... Now, these are various terms that are used in Scripture, but they all refer to the same office. Elder, overseer, presbyter, bishop, pastor, shepherd. All of these are the same office. The distinction in the terms has to do with their function or role, tasks or responsibilities that they are to do. These are the leaders tasked with the pastoral oversight of the flock of God. They're to care for the people of God. And one of the primary ways that elders or overseers or pastors do that is by teaching God's people, instructing them. And then there's a twofold process here to their care, and that is protecting them from false teachers, which we see in these pastoral epistles refer to time and time again. From the very foundation of the church, God intended for the local church to have elders and pastors. It's interesting that two decades after the events of Pentecost, we see in Acts chapter 11 a reflection there that there was already a plurality of elders at the church in Jerusalem. We find that in Acts chapter 14, as Paul and his team are ministering in Lystra and Iconium and in Antioch, it says that they appointed elders in every church in each one of those cities. Elders In every church. That was the apostolic imperative. It's interesting that you find today. It's it's something I've heard. And I remember there was a a big movement back in the uh, 90s. In the early 2000s. It persists to this day. But it was the organic church movement. Or the house church movement. And the whole thrust of that movement was. We need to get back to the New Testament example of churches. The churches met in homes and the churches had no leadership structure, no top-down leadership and on and on and on. However, the challenge there is we do not find that as a biblical imperative here. This aspect that there was no leadership in the church is a really ignorant and unbiblical one. For We can see pretty clear a prescriptive pattern of establishing leadership in the local church and certainly appointing leaders in the local church church. We can rail and speak out against the institutional church as much as we want, and certainly there are flaws and faults and errors and really sinful things that happen, right? We've talked about spiritual abuse 
in the institutional church, but to say that there's no leadership that should be established and really the, the only model was to meet in homes is not the right interpretation of Scripture. And we've talked about that uh, in the past, right? Leadership in practice in the New Testament is what we see in place because leadership in the local church matters. It's important, uh, but it's a particular type of leadership, isn't it? It's godly leadership that is in view. Now, we're going to move here to the qualifications for these elders that Titus is to appoint. Again, the parallel passage to this is the third chapter of 1 Timothy. So, some of this will be review, and I'm certainly not going to go into the detail I went to in 1 Timothy chapter 3. You can refer uh, to that message where we covered those qualifications uh, in detail. But, in the qualifications to Timothy in First Timothy chapter 3, Paul starts there with this. The, Therefore, an overseer must be. Tells us that these qualifications are not optional. There are non-negotiable, mandatory qualifications that must be met by those who would seek to lead in the church, particularly in the office of overseer, elder, or pastor. And in our passage, Paul asserts these qualifications in both negative language and positive language. Negatively, he says those who would be appointed as elders must not be these things. They must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain. These are negative, sinful virtues that must not be manifest in those individuals who would be appointed to this role. And positively, he states it this way. This is what they must be. They must be above reproach. Notice that is referred to twice. That is a very important qualification, right? Must be above reproach. Must be hospitable. A lover of good. Self-controlled. Upright. Holy. And disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Now, does that mean that this person who would be appointed to this task must be perfect and sinless? No, I I would not be standing here if that were the case. (laughs) Nobody would be standing doing this if that were the case. To be blameless or holy or upright or above reproach means that they must be a person of unimpeachable character. No one can bring a valid charge or criticism against them that would repudiate their claim to having a good, moral, upright, and godly character. So a godly reputation and character are paramount when considering those who would be appointed to the office of elder. Elders over the church and flock of Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a serious thing. It's an important thing. Now, there are three areas that Paul emphasizes in these qualifications that would be placed under evaluation or in the evaluation of uh, the man who would be considered for this role. First concerns the elder's marriage and family life, right? And we talked about this. The home is the first place where an elder is proven. They can't manage their own household. They have no business managing the household of God. If they're not faithful to their wife, they're not going to be faithful to Christ's bride, his church. If, if godliness isn't promoted in the home and it's not manifested in the home, well, they have no business trying to promote what they're not practicing in the home. 
And then it turns to the aspect of their children, right? They're not to be insubordinate. They're not to be rebellious, okay? So what's in mind here is obedient, submissive uh, children, right? It's an important aspect. The home is the little church where the elder first learns these things and practices these things and manifests them. The second consideration here is the elder's character and conduct. The man who would aspire to the office of an overseer must evidence character and conduct, and conduct a, a, a pursuit of holiness and godliness that demonstrates that there is true regeneration of the spirit that happens in their life. Has happened and the ongoing work of sanctification in their life because they're pursuing godliness. They must be self-controlled. They can't be a hothead. Their emotions need to be in check. I've served with pastors who are quick-tempered. I mean, like, I mean, they, they just, like, they went from one to ten in an instant. I mean, it's like, whoa, something's missing here. Something's misfiring. Not prone to addictive behavior. Right? If the pastor leaves the pulpit and goes home and, and hits the bottle, that's a problem, isn't it? Right? Or goes look at porn. They have to bear fruit in their lives consistent of a regenerate believer. Why? Well, I've said it before. The job description of the elder is their character. The character is the job description. Notice, there aren't a whole lot of skills mentioned here. Not in this chapter, not in the passage of chapter 3 in 1 Timothy. They have to be a great administrator. They have to do this. They have to be able to do this. They have to be able to do this. There's only one skill set that is given there, and that is an ability to teach. Beyond that, we don't have anything else. They've got to be good businessmen. None of those things are mentioned here as the qualifications of an elder. It's the character. It's their life. Why? Why is that a big deal? Because of the kind of examples they're supposed to be. They're supposed to be an example to the flock of God. Like Paul was able to tell in in several of his letters, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Watch my life, see what it's like, and Follow that example. As much as I'm trying to pursue Christ and go after Christ and grow in godliness and holiness, the church should be able to look at its elders and those who are in leadership over the local church and say, okay, I'm getting a picture of that. Is it perfect? No. But is there a movement towards Christ? Are they pointing me to Christ? Are the things in their life aligned and consistent with the teaching, the truth that is being uh, professed and heralded and proclaimed? If yes, then follow it. That's why it's important. And that's why these things must be evaluated. That's why time is necessary to evaluate that. I've said it time and time again here when we talk about this. Some churches, someone shows up out of the blue and they're wealthy. They run a business. They seem to have a good head on their shoulders, right? They've they've got a company and they employ two or three hundred people and immediately they're made an elder of the church. That's stupid. You know nothing about someone's character. And you won't know that by what they tell you. It's the actions. And time reveals what they really believe and how they really believe. That takes time to observe and to watch. So this is why it's a big deal. And even if there's a shortage of godly men to look at to set into office here, the church should never relax these standards. Should never waive them or set them aside because there's a need. 
One should never do that. This matters. This is important. Now, I've reminded you through all of this that though these letters are called pastoral letters and written to leaders in the church, it is not just for leaders in the church. These letters were read to the church with the expectation that the church would receive these and put these things into practice in their own lives. These qualifications that we would say are are to be those of uh, those who would lead in the church, the men who would be elders in the church, are qualifications that every single believer should aspire to. All of us should live self-controlled lives. All of us should not be quick-tempered. We should not be arrogant. Why? These are the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, goodness, meekness, faith, temperance, right? These should be made manifest in a life pursuing growth in holiness, in godliness, a sanctified life. Every man in this church should aspire to meet these qualifications. It's not to say, well, you know, I really am not interested in leading in the church. It doesn't matter. You should still be aspiring to meet the qualifications mentioned here. So this is for you. You can't just skip over this passage. It says qualifications for elders. I'm not an elder. Let me just go ahead and go to chapter 2. Nope. No, this, this is for you. This is for every single one of us here. These qualities and virtues should be seen in the life of everyone who bears the name of Christ and has been sealed with the Spirit of Christ. Would that there would be more qualified men in the church, whether we were needed as elders or not. Now, there's a third concern for evaluation here, and it's, it's a big one. It's the elder's grasp of the truth. Verse 9, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught. The trustworthy word. That's what he needs to hold on to. Not just truth. Notice he doesn't say what is true. Yes, that's in view here, but it's the trustworthy word, the reliable and true word. What is that? It's apostolic teaching. It's the gospel. It is the scripture. He's got to hold on to that. All of the treasure that has been entrusted to the church, the good deposit by Christ's apostles, these individuals must hold firmly to those. Stand in them and not move from them, not deviate from what the apostle taught. Again, 1 Timothy 3.2, the qualification, the only skill, it's able to teach. So we know he's got to be able to teach because instruction is part of it, but he's also got to be loyal to the teaching. He's got to hold on to it. He's got to say, this is the truth, and it doesn't matter what fanciful revelation comes up out there, or someone has this other revelation or interpretation, if it contradicts and deviates from this, it must be rejected. This is what's firmly held on to. Teaching is what elders do. And those are the two dimensions here that are listed. The first is to give instruction in sound doctrine. That's what elders are charged with. Go back to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. He told uh, Timothy there, Paul writing to him, said, Listen, what I've entrusted to you, what you've received to me, for me, now you need to go teach other faithful men who will in turn teach others. Right? There is that replication of apostolic teaching. Right, This is how the truth has come down to us to this day. And again, we marvel 2,000 years now, plus years, how the Lord has preserved this teaching in this word in his church. And here we are today teaching the same apostolic 
doctrine and instruction that Titus and Timothy here are teaching the church. The second dimension has to do with rebuking those who contradict sound doctrine. So it's instructing in sound doctrine and rebuking those who contradict it. Right? So the pastor both edifies and he also corrects, instructs, and rebukes. Two arenas of teaching, two dimensions of teaching. Uh, Calvin, in his commentary on the pastorals, uh, states it this way. The pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. The scripture supplies him with the means of doing both. For he who is deeply skilled in it will be able both to govern those who are teachable and to refute the enemies of the truth. Isn't that what we find in these letters and instructions to to Timothy and now to Titus? You've got to deal with those who have deviated from the sound doctrine, those who are teaching what is false. And so that second arena, that second dimension of the elders' teaching ministry now is what we come to in this second portion of our text today. Verse 10, if you look there, verse 10, it says, For there are many. That conjunction four links these two sections together. These two thoughts are one continuous instruction that Paul is bringing to us here. This is the reason why Titus must appoint elders in every town and finish what the apostle had started. And the reason is this proliferation of false teachers who were deceiving people, leading them astray from the truth. So it's interesting, again, The apostle's strategy in dealing with false teachers has to do now with the appointment of godly leaders in the church. And this is the strategy. When false teachers increase, true teachers must be multiplied. When false teachers increase and abound, what do we need more of? Those who are teaching the truth. More teachers of the truth are needed who are able to refute error and rebuke those teaching and listening to error. If there was ever a time we needed more true teachers, it's today. False teaching abounds everywhere. We've we've talked about it at length uh, in this series. And I don't ever want to underestimate that. You've got to be on guard for it. Just why you need to have the truth. You need to be instructed in sound doctrine. You need to receive it. You need to study it. You need to have it internalized and in you because there is a lot of false out there. A lot of voices vying for your attention, vying for your ears to hear. We've already seen the rebuke in the previous letter of those who have itching ears. We don't want to be those kind of people. We want to be lovers of the truth. Now let's look at the nature of ungodly teachers because this is how Paul characterizes them. In verse 10 For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Let's look at these three characterizations here. First, they are insubordinate. Now, we already know in contrast to the family of those who would be appointed as elders, their kids cannot be insubordinate, right? These teachers, these false teachers are insubordinate. They are rebellious. They resist and reject authority. They think of themselves as a law unto themselves, that they don't need to submit 
to the authority of the local church or the local leadership of the church. That's how you know, and you can call someone a false teacher and a false prophet out there. They refuse to submit themselves to the leadership. It's not the only way, but it's an important one. They refuse to submit themselves to the leadership of a local church, to the elders of a local church. They're not true. They're false. Right? A lot of false prophets out there who think that they've got the revelation that every Christian needs, and nobody can tell me otherwise. God told me. So what, what's it, why should I submit myself to the elder of a local church and submit this teaching to God showed me. God didn't tell you anything. That's your own foolishness, ignorance, and we know it's demonic teaching, right, if it contradicts Scripture. So don't receive it, right? I recently sat with, with a couple that, you know, well-intentioned but deceived in this area, and, and there's a refusal to submit to local leadership of a church. So they feel they have a teaching they received in a dream, and that teaching now is for every believer in every church, and so they want to go from place to place and teach that. And I said, well, you're going to have a problem with those elders who actually uh, embrace the role and responsibility that they've been given by God. Because you're not going to have freedom. You certainly won't have freedom to do that here. You've got to submit, right? So first of all, they are insubordinate. They're rebellious. They reject authority. But ultimately, who are they rebelling against? God. And they're rebelling against the authority of the Word of God. Okay? The second characterization here is that they are empty talkers. Empty talkers. They're all talk and no substance. They are windbags, right? Full of hot air. They've got nothing. Their words do not produce life. They are not life-giving, okay? Empty talkers, spewing worthless drivel, right? Teaching devoid of the truth. It's devoid of the truth because ultimately they are deceivers, is what he says here, right? Actively leading people astray. The majority of false teachers out there, you know, we might think, well, they're claiming, you know, they might be ignorant. No, they know what they're doing. They're deceiving. They're being deceived themselves, but they are deceiving others intentionally. They know what they're doing is deceptive. Now, Paul now, in giving this characterization, calls out a a specific group here, the circumcision party. Now, I don't know how they passed out invites to this party, how they got people to join this party. You know, I can imagine their slogan, ain't no party like a circumcision party, you know. I, it's weird now. But we, we, this phrase is, is familiar in Paul's writings. He, he refers to them in Galatians. Now, this might not be exactly that same group there that he's referring to because we don't really know the nature of this false teaching that he's talking about but it had to do with a jewish group of some sort that um, clung to jewish myths maybe were imposing jewish traditions maybe the law like in galatians chapter 3 right he he levels a charge against the judaizers who are introducing the law back in to the work of grace it's christ plus the law it's grace plus works, right? They were adding to the gospel, adding an additional burden that, that caused the gospel to no longer be the gospel, right? Uh, so it could be something similar to that. But we do know he refers to that they were devoting themselves to Jewish uh, myths. So it probably had to do with some of that. Uh, you may not know this, but the corpus of Jewish, Jewish mythology is massive, uh, especially 
you know, the second temple period. I mean, there are myths that have were told surrounding the narrative of of the Old Testament and the people in the Old Testament. I mean, they're crazy, crazy mythology surround that stuff. So there was some, you know, synergism between those things and, and the Christianity and gospel teaching. Whatever it was, it ceased to be the gospel, right? It was a deviation from the gospel. And so Paul's calling this particular thing out. Uh, and so it, it seems like they had to, had to be strict legalists. Had to, again, do this with man-made traditions being imposed on the people of God, right? Um, so that's kind of what's in view here. So Paul says, especially that group, okay? They're insubordinate. They're deceivers. They're empty talkers, right? So watch out for them here. I've named some of those before, and I'll continue to do that as we go on through our series, right? So Paul now, is, this is a, a funny verse to me, uh, verses 12 and 13, right? He's going to amplify uh, the corrupt character of these false teachers and the rotten reputation that they have. Look what he writes there. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And he goes, yeah, that's true. <laughs> Talk about ethnic stereotypes, huh? <laughs> I mean, he's just like, yeah. Now he's quoting what many to believe a 6th century B.C. Uh, philosopher, poet, teacher, uh, a Cretan teacher by the name of Epimenides of Canossus. And uh, legend, legend made him a prophet. And it says that he spent 50-something years in a cave where he received a direct revelation from Zeus. Uh, and he himself kind of became immortal later. He was deified and so forth. So that, there's a lot of legend and mythology around this character, but some of his writing is quoted in other um, early period historians of that time. But one of the things he wrote was that Cretans are always liars. I mean, he made this massive generalization, right? He jokingly wrote that the absence of wild beasts on the, on the islands uh, was supplanted by its human inhabitants, right? So the fact that, you know, he was kind of calling his own people wild beasts, they, they more than make up for the absence of wild beasts on the island because they're just wild beasts themselves. Uh, he didn't seem to have a high view of his own people. Um, uh, so he wrote those things. And, and Cretans were infamous, not just for their immorality, right, their decadent immorality, but also this aspect of lying. So much so that the Greeks coined this verb, kretizo, to refer to lying and cheating, right? So... Being a Cretan or to, to do a Crete, or I don't know how they referred to it there, right, would mean to lie, because that's how they were characterized, okay? That was their reputation. Now, it's un, an unflattering reputation for sure, and unflattering statements and characterization, and it seems like Paul is confirming that. He spent some time on the island, and he's going, yeah, that's kind of generally true, right? Now, did he believe that to be true of all Cretans? No. He wasn't embracing this as an ethnic stereotype sometimes as we hear in derogatory ways in our world and our culture today. Because, again, he's telling Titus to appoint elders in every town where there's a church. These elders were going to be Cretan. Right? Yes. Right? And they were supposed to be teachers of the truth and of what is true. So... It's not a statement he's applying to everyone. What is he doing here? He's applying this general statement about Cretan culture to the rebellious 
false teachers who are lying, who are perpetrating evil, who are deceiving others, and who are greedy and slothful. In essence, he's saying these false teachers are truly Cretan in every way possible. That's what they are. And that's how he characterized them. Now, he's going to mention a couple of fundamental errors of these ungodly and false teachers. Three, actually. Uh, And he discloses them here in this passage. This first fundamental error of these false teachers is that they devoted themselves to myths and man-made traditions. We've already talked a little bit about these Jewish myths, but he inserts here man-made traditions. There were commands that didn't come from Scripture, did not come from apostolic teaching, that they were imposing on the church, imposing on the people of God. They devoted themselves. Now, who is he writing about here? It is the false teachers, but it also is those who are listening to these false teachings. They're also devoting themselves to these things because they're following them. They're listening to them, and they're following them. Instead of devoting themselves to the true and living word of God, Submitting themselves to the author of life and the teaching of his apostles. They're submitting themselves to opinions of men. Opinions of men who did not love the truth and who had left the truth behind. Why do we continually exhort you? Stay tethered to the truth. Do not move away from it. I don't care what vision someone has. I don't care what angel they say appeared to them. I don't care what trance they claim to have gone in for an extended period of time and God showed them everything. I watched a video of this foolish, foolish woman prophet out there by the name of Kat Kerr. Stuff always pops up about her on my Instagram feed. And she claims to have gone to heaven I don't know how many times. I'm I'm surprised she lives here more than she does in heaven. But this, this video last week that I watched was how she went to heaven and guess who she saw there? John Wayne. John Wayne was there. Who knew? Who knew? And Michael Jackson was there. And I'm just sitting here. I'm like, and this foolish interviewer, man, is just, oh, lapping it all up. And I'm going, what morons? What absolute fools and false prophets and teachers? Now, you need to, you hear those things. Now, here's the thing. I mention her because there's, Dumb churches around here who bring her. She shows up in our town every so often. Because there's churches within our geographical area who invite her in to spew her worthless drivel. Her and a lot of other ones like her. Male and female alike. Stay tethered to the truth. No one has gone to heaven save Christ Jesus, okay? No one can claim to know and say, this is what it's, what's there. I was tiptoeing, and there's unicorns, and there's cotton candy flowers. Come on. Come on. And people are like, yeah, give me more of that. Stay tethered to the truth. Many peddling their own opinions. Things that are absent from God's word, Right? To sell a lot of books. They get massive online platforms. I've told you already. Most of the, the books. Stop selling books on the, in the Christian genre. Avoid them. They're worthless. They're absolutely worthless. Now you know I love books. I love to read. I love to learn. Okay. 
But I have got to love God's word more than I love every other word of man. I need to read God's word more than I read the words and opinions of men. Spurgeon famously said it this way, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. Good books is the caveat. Many are not, but live in God's word. Consume God's word. Feast on God's word. Those are the words of life, and that's good instruction for all of us. That was the first error. The second fundamental error of these ungodly and false teachers was their misunderstanding of what produces true godliness. 15, you read this, and it it sounds a little bit cryptic, but we'll, we'll unpack this a little bit. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. We need to understand this a little bit in light of something we looked at already in 1 Timothy, right? Uh, And in our study there, we saw that the the external and outward expressions of purity was what these false teachers were commanding others to follow. That was the emphasis, right? The outward expressions of what looks and appears to be godliness and typically had to do with the practices of asceticism, right? Uh, Abstaining from things, right? Things that even God has declared to be good and pure and right, abstain from them because in doing so, that is going to produce more godliness in your life. First uh, Timothy chapter 4, let's read that particular passage that speaks to this. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, and we know when the later times are, right? It's now. It was then, is now will be until the Lord returns, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves, there's that devotion again, to this ungodly teaching, which Paul here calls deceit, the teachings of deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars, which is what he refers to them as in Titus, whose consciences are seared, look at verse 3, who forbid marriage, Require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. What were these false teachers doing? They were putting people back into bondage with their man-made rules. Things that could never truly produce the inward purity, holiness, and godliness that only the Spirit of God can produce, right? So their teaching was one has to deny themselves these these certain fleshly appetites through this rule-keeping, right? Uh, Denying themselves things that God had declared to be good and pure. Is marriage evil? Don't think about your own marriage. Think about marriage in general, okay? No, it's not, right? (laughs) God designed marriage. Foods. Well, all food is clean now. Praise God. We can eat all the pork we want for the glory of God. It's not unclean, right? If we receive it with thanksgiving. To the pure, all things are pure. Those who have the knowledge of the truth, right? Who have the spirit of Christ, who know this, go, no, I can receive these things with thanksgiving. It's been made holy by the word of God in prayer, right? God's word has declared it to be good and through the act of thanksgiving and receiving it that way. It's pure to the pure. All things are pure. But these guys were distorting all of that and saying, nope, 
The only way you're going to advance in godliness, the only way you're going to level up spiritually, the only way you're going to attain true holiness is by abstaining from those things. Avoiding them, right? It was, it was, it was a, a legalistic type of asceticism, right? A legalism. Now, Paul also condemns this in Colossians. Look, Colossians 2, let's look at a few verses there, 18 and 20 through 23. He writes to the church there, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, According, look, to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgences of the flesh. That's a lot. We don't have time to unpack all of that. But the basic gist of was deny yourself these things and you will become more holy and righteous and good. This is apart from the work of grace. You've got to do these things. That is how. And, and Paul writes there, all these things with the severity of the body and, and these ascetic practices cannot truly accomplish what they claim. They cannot deliver on the promise of making you godly and holy. They cannot sanctify you. These outward expressions of purity without an inner transformation of the heart and gospel-driven motivations will not keep you from your own sinful and selfish heart. It cannot do it. I merely have to think of the purity movement back of the 90s and the early 2000s. Right? We talked about that before, the True Love Ways campaign. Oh, oh, we need to get young people to abstain from sex you know, until marriage. N- not a wrong goal, right? But it was an obsession with this outward expression of of, of, of a moralism, of a purity. But what can that do to change the heart? Nothing. It wasn't gospel fuel preaching that was coming out. It was a strict moralism. Right? The same thing back when I, my early days of faith. Oh, you listen to this kind of music, you're going to hell. You know, you listen to ACDC, you're going you're gonna to be feeling the flames of hell as you play that record. You know? <laughs> or whatever. Pick your band out there. Listen to it backwards. I said, listen to it forward. It's just as demonic, right? But what, what's the problem with legalism? The problem is that these rules and these laws, right, they look like they're promoting godliness, right? They, but what they're actually doing is limiting godliness. And they're limiting godliness by making godliness all about checking off these boxes in this outward uh, expression of holiness or purity. Right? You check off the box. You can only listen to Z88. <laughs> you know, Christian radio. You can only listen to Christian radio and nothing else. Right? Uh, make sure you don't ever watch an R-rated movie. M- make sure you attend church regularly. Right? The list of do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. Right? You, you check those off, then... By default there, now you are considered godly and holy. But is that how that works? That's not how that works, right? Because I can check off every box. I never have alcohol touched the tip of my tongue. 
But if I'm short-tempered with my wife, if I have no, you know, incl- you know, you know, if I decide, you know, well, I'm going to fudge my timesheet a little bit, you know, so I can get paid a little bit more and say I got back earlier and I have no problem with that. What's wrong? There's an incongruity here between my profession of faith and my conduct. But I checked off all the boxes. Hourly, you'd go, wow, man, you are superhuman. Nope, because inside the heart can be rotten to the core. That's not how we determine godliness. That's not how that works. We are sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit, and that is an inside-out project, not an outside-in one. Right? The Pharisees were experts in the outward looking amazing. Oh, we obeyed every law. We even don't disobey a single one. That was a lie, of course, but we don't, we don't disobey the law. And what did Jesus say they were? They were whitewashed tombs. That tomb looks good, but that rotting, decaying, putrid corpse is still on the inside. No, we need the heart change. We need the transformation that only the Spirit of God could bring. And that's the only way that holiness and godliness is produced in any Christian life. This leads us to the third fundamental error of these false teachers. They profess to know God, but they denied Him by their works. Right? Again, the creeds don't match the conduct. Conduct creeds out of sync. They're not aligned. Okay? They made a claim about Christ, about knowing Christ, but they deny him by their corrupt character. And Paul says, you know what they are? It's detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Our actions reveal the true nature of our hearts. What you are in here will work its way out. You can fool people for a while, but you ain't going to fool them forever. And you certainly are never fooling the Lord, right? Our actions are going to be made manifest. They will reveal what we truly believe in our heart, what we devote ourselves to, what we give our time to, what we make a priority, what we give most of our money to, all is a revelation of the heart. So we can say, we know Jesus, we claim Jesus, we profess Jesus, we are on Jesus' side, I've got the t-shirt. It's wonderful. Good. The profession of faith is important. But what's going to show it? The fruit of our lives will demonstrate that. Over time, we're going to be able to tell. Wow. Yes. I affirm. (laughs) They are. Or, man. Right? You all have someone in mind right now that leaves you scratching your head going, I wonder if they're really saved. You might be wondering that about yourself. Why? Because my conduct doesn't match my creed. Right? What I say with my mouth and what I do with my life is out of sync. That's sobering, and that's something we have to continually evaluate in our own life. These false teachers were the polar opposite of what true godly teachers are in character and conduct. You see why he's saying? You've got a lot of false. You need true teachers now. This is why you need to appoint elders, godly teachers and leaders who are not insubordinate, who submit to authority, who have a firm grasp on the truth, right? And they teach things that lead to life and godliness. They're truth tellers. Their character and conduct aligns with their confession of faith. So quickly, 
Now he's got to deal with them. And here's the instruction on how to deal with ungodly teachers. Verse 11, they must be silenced. What does that mean? <laughs> that tell them to shut up. That's basically what it means. Tim, Titus here, like Timothy, has to confront these false teachers. There's not room for a casual attitude, a laid-back attitude in addressing those who would be teaching what is false and leading God's people astray. He's got to go directly at them. Okay? Uh, one commentator put it this way, the First Amendment does not apply to the local church. And I know here in the West, right in our country, we, we love our First Amendment, right? Not in the local church. You can't just say whatever you want to say. You can't claim your own version of the truth over and against the truth. Not everyone's opinion is equal. Your opinion of the truth, even my opinion of the truth, is not what matters. It's the truth that matters. And anything that is said in the name of truth that contradicts God's word, the truth, apostolic teaching, what we see here in our Bible needs to be called out and rejected. Right? Not every truth claim is true. Right? So we have a zero, po- uh, zero tolerance policy when it comes to any teaching that deviates from the true gospel and clear teaching of scripture. And that's your responsibility too. You ever hear something coming from here and you go, wait a minute, God's word says this. What is your responsibility? Confront it. Yes? Don't be scared. We all have to do that. They need to be told to shut up. He's got to take action to stop the teaching and blunt their influence in the church. Look what he says is is happening. He says they're upsetting whole families. That word families in the original language is the same word for households that is referred to when we talk about God's household. So by implication here, he's talking about churches. They're influencing the churches in a very negative way. They're upsetting the faith. They're causing the faith of some to be... uh, shipwrecked and they're profiting from it isn't that one of the the telltale signs of a lot of false teaching out there right it's always tied to the money you know did you like this teaching send me a thousand dollars and that'll be a force multiplier in your life you know that thousand fold return one eight 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 call dan you know (laughs) text dan money to you know and and It's the same thing here. They were going from house to house or there teaching what was false and immediately passing that offering bucket around, right? Uh, So they were profiting from this. Again, false teaching is deadly. It's toxic and it needs to be eradicated from the church, right? Why? False teaching leads to false living. It always does. It will not produce godliness. It will not point you to Christ. Right? Uh, in verse 13 then, he also says, Therefore rebuke them sharply. So they need to be silenced. And the way they're going to be silenced ultimately is through a stern rebuke from the elders of the church. Okay? And he says, this is why you need to do it, so that they would be sound in the faith. That is the goal of the rebuke. Presumably, it's not just the false teachers in view, but those who are listening to it because... It's the believers that are being impacted by the false teaching. So they need to be rebuked with the goal of leading them back to the truth, instructing them in sound doctrine, to hold to sound doctrine, and reject what is false. 
They must turn from what is false to what is true. Okay? All of us. And think about that. Process what you're listening to. Be very discriminant in your listening. Don't just listen to everything. Right? Exercise discernment. But you're only going to be able to truly discern if you have God's word. If you know God's word and if you know the truth. So, the way this is dealt with is elders practicing church discipline, right? Which we talked about uh, earlier on in our series, right? This church discipline for those who are teaching what is false and those who, what, who are listening to what is false. This is why godly leaders are needed in the church. One of the flaws of that house, the house church movement I talked about earlier, and I heard many of the proponents of this early on later to say, we kind of failed in this task. Because guess what started happening in a lot of house churches with no structured leadership, with no godly elders in place? Everybody's opinions, right, were what was being talked about. Everyone's own interpretation. Everyone's own revelation, right? This is why in our own city groups, when we gather and we go through God's word, it's never, hey, what do you think this says? Hey, what does this mean to you? Because we don't care what it means to you. You shouldn't care what it means to me. We have to only care what it means. What did God for it, God intend for it to mean to the people it was written to? Okay? Well, in these house churches, right, ultimately it was it's a free-for-all. Everyone had a word of prophecy. Everyone had a, a revelation. Everyone had their own private interpretation. That's chaos. That is disorder. That is a dysfunctional family of believers. And, and Paul's instruction to Titus here, finish what remains. Put into order. And the order is godly leaders. Right? Godly leaders will bring about the order that instructs uh, God's people in sound doctrine and refutes error that might come forth. Super important. Elders who are consistently calling God's people to that which leads them to true godliness. Leading God's people to be biblical in their thinking, biblical in their way of living, and calling God's people to embrace and believe the true gospel and to flee from error. That's our job, right? And we need more godly leaders. We need more of these kinds of men. And as I said earlier, sadly, in the church at large, they are in short supply. And I would call every man in our church to aspire to these qualifications, aspire to the role of overseer. You may or may not be called to that office in the church, but all of us are called to live holy and godly lives. And ultimately, there's only one we can look to that meets all of these qualifications perfectly and completely, and that's our Lord and Savior, Christ Jesus. Right? He is the excellent elder, the true and perfect elder. You know, when, when Paul is, is, is chiding the insubordination of these false teachers, we know that not to be true of Christ. He was submissive to the will of the Father. He was the example of, of perfect meekness and, and holiness and godliness, might and, and majesty in everything that he did. Bold in, conf in confronting and refuting error. That's what he did. In the right spirit, in humility. Sacrificial service to his father and to, to us who are recipients of his, his, his gracious work of grace. 
He's the one we look to as our example in all these things. But here's what I would like for you to do. Pray. Pray that God raises up more godly leaders because we need more godly leaders. Here and the church at large needs more godly leaders. And, and, and noting the qualifications that elders need to aspire to, would you pray for your pastor? By God's grace, next week we're going to set in another elder in office here at Send Church, our dear brother Eric. Pray for us. It is not an easy task to which we have been called. Okay? We need your prayers. We need your prayers. Lastly, I want to encourage you all to live this life of godliness that is fueled by the grace we have in Christ Jesus and the knowledge of the truth. Evaluate your own life. Is your life consistent with what you confess about your faith? If it's not, your faith is suspect. And I would implore you to turn to Christ. Flee to Christ. Look to Christ and His perfect righteousness. For in Him and through the work of the grace of the Spirit of the Lord, you will be conformed more and more to the image of Christ and grow in godliness.